Amen. Thank you, Bo. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. I was reading last night a book that just came in the mail, which is one of the, my favorite things to get new books in the mail. Um, it was a book, it's called Evangelistic Sermons, and it was compiled um, from Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons, and they found it in a shoebox in his attic in like the 80s, years after he had died. And it, it's representative of his early years in ministry where he was just so evangelistically focused in this a church congregation. In fact, his wife became a Christian under that first year of his preaching uh, these sermons. And one of the things it, it says in the intro, they quote, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, the greatest men should always be the evangelists and generally have been. And I think he was right. I think the godliest and most powerful men throughout history uh, have always been great evangelists. If you read Christian biographies, um, and I only read like the highest recommended biographies. I don't read a, a, a huge amount of them, but the ones I've read, they're always evangelistic. Um, Martin Luther, John Edwards, John Bunyan, not Paul Bunyan, but John Bunyan. Adnarum Judson, uh, Dawson Trotman, who's a founder of the Navigators and, and um, led the, um, the, the follow-up and discipleship charge of Billy Graham's ministries. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones himself, he was an evangelist. Uh, Robert Murray McShane. You study these men and you see that evangelism, it's just a part of them. It's the, the, the type of characteristic that when you read of it in their life, you're not even surprised. Like, of course they would you know, be evangelistic. They're sold out. You know, that's, that's their personality. And so we take it for granted. But last week, I hope that we saw what really makes them tick. It's not that they're not ashamed of the gospel. It's that they glory in the gospel. They love the message of salvation, that they see it as a privilege to proclaim to people. And so today I want to look at some really specific characteristics and hope that we would see that these kind of tie these, all these great men together in hopes that we would emulate them. I've been a Christian since around the age of 14, I think, is when I was converted. And my evangelism has always been severely underwhelming. I think it peaked in high school when I had five guys in the back of my car and I was bringing them to church. And to me, that was evangelism. Really, it plummeted, though, in my 30s when I was asked to bring a friend uh, to to receive cancer treatment in Houston. And it was an experimental treatment because his cancer had become so bad. And and, and this guy, we'd become friends through my wife. And he um, he was an atheist. He kind of grew up in the church and chose to be an atheist. And But now on his deathbed, he was seeking. And I remember as we drove to Houston, four hours there, four hours back, I even saw a Bible in his books. Like I never once shared the gospel with him. I just said, hey, man, good job. I'm glad you're searching. It's not that I didn't have the message. It's that I didn't think I needed to share it. And so I vacillated all throughout my Christianity in, in this evangelism. I think I landed somewhere between C.S. Lewis and Ravi Zacharias and just thinking if I quoted these guys and, you know, God could use me. But the spark that really ignited it for me was one day sitting at Starbucks with a friend who lived across the street from me. And after you know a few months, they started coming to church and they were coming to church for uh, you know about three to six months after that. And they were hearing the gospel all the time. You heard Bo just share it. I'm going to share it probably twice today in this message. And I just took for granted that obviously they're Christians now. They've been hearing the gospel so many times. 
Well, I sat down with him and I shared the explicit gospel with a tool called the bridge diagram. And I remember seeing a light bulb literally just go off in this guy's head. He had never understood that he was a sinner and he had to pay a penalty for his sin. It wasn't just something that he put on top of his, you know, already um, put together life to make him even better. It was something that made him realize he was altogether worthless before God and he needed salvation. He didn't become a Christian that day, but I think it led the found or it laid the foundation for it. And so this was the spark for me, the power of personal conversations and sharing the explicit gospel. Richard Baxter, who's a Puritan pastor, he wrote the Reformed Pastor. He's found this out long ago that the power in personal conversations and individual conversations. Although he, like all the Puritans, loved the preaching of God's word and viewed it as the primary means of grace, he would find that people, although he'd been, they'd been sitting under his preaching and he, he sought to preach very plainly and very warmly to them, they still didn't understand certain things. For instance, he, he, he came across this a number of times where someone didn't know if Christ was God or Christ was man. And he says... He, or I quote Richard Baxter, they are amazed when I tell them the history of his birth, life, and death, and of the sending abroad of the gospel as if they had never heard it before. And these guys have been sitting under his preaching for years. He noticed that most people that he would really press in their faith found that their faith was not actually biblical. They were confident that God would save them, uh, but they were also confident that they could hold on to the love that they had for the world as well. But it wasn't until he got into conversation with them that he was able to see that. He says, I have found by experience that an ignorant man who has been an unprofitable hearer has received more knowledge and remorse of conscience in half an hour's close discourse than he did in 10 years of public preaching. So if he's a faithful attender in 10 years, I think that's 500 hours of preaching versus 30 minutes of a conversation. And so the way I, I kind of reconcile all this is that the conversation is the the um, match that lights the bonfire. And it's the preaching of God's word that lays the logs on the fire. And, and the conversation makes it come alive. And so that's what we're aiming at today, to be evangelists, to have conversations with people about the gospel. Last week, we, we talked about the gospel and we saw that it wasn't that um, Paul was ashamed of the gospel when he says, I am not ashamed. It's that he was using a double negative to emphasize the fact that he loved the gospel. He gloried in it because of its power, because uh, of its ability to save people, because of what salvation meant to people or what it means to us. He understood salvation in its full um, definition. He loved that it was for everybody and that all you have to do to inherit salvation or to receive salvation is repent, to have faith. And we defined evangelism as proclaiming the message of the gospel. That's evangelism. You have to open your mouth. But then we define the gospel as the good news of Jesus Christ, that you can have forgiveness of your sins. In order to receive forgiveness of your sins, you must repent and believe in the gospel and Jesus Christ who is the, the central figure of the gospel. If you look through the keyhole, that is the gospel, you will see Jesus Christ. That's why to love Christ and to love his gospel, really, you can't separate that. And so this is the message that you're proclaiming, forgiveness of sins through repentance and faith. And it is essentially, as, as Bo said, a good message. This is good news. 
Sure, there are negative elements to it, but we cannot diminish those in order to make it sound more attractive to people. We have to actually embrace the negative elements of the gospel that the gospel would be good news. And I used an illustration last week of a man in a jail cell and the door was tightly locked and shut and he was chained to the wall and he had been sentenced to death and he was just awaiting the day which would be his execution. And then let's just go further in the illustration. So the day comes and the door opens and the jailer picks him up and walks him to a platform and sets him in a chair and binds him to the chair. And he begins to administer the lethal injection that would take his life and send him to hell. In walks a man and says, stop. The judge has issued a pardon for him. He doesn't have to die. That's essentially what you're doing as an evangelist. You don't have to die. Jesus Christ has died in your place. Someone else has paid the fine. That's the message that we as evangelists get to proclaim to people. So the main point today is that evangelism is a contact sport. You have to go out and engage with people. The title is evangelism is engaging with people. This involves talking to all sorts of people, all kinds of people, because the gospel is for all kinds of people. And if it is that engaging with people, the lost of the world, then I picked out four things that I see in this text that we need to have. We need to grow in these four things. Now, there are probably a lot more, but I think these are a good start for any would-be evangelist. Uh, These are some things you would certainly find present in any evangelist in history. Now, I understand for many of us, and you know, if, if I wasn't the one preaching, I'd be feeling the same way you're, you're preaching this, or you're feeling. Uh, this, this topic of evangelism is always feeling a little daunting, and it may bring about guilt and shame because you know you haven't been faithful. But one thing, and I alluded to this earlier, you will not find in this sermon is a quota. You are not called to bring a certain amount of people to faith every year. You're called to just be faithful with this message, to be a good steward of the message that you have received as a Christian. But God will use you. He will use you, an ordinary Christian, just as he's used me, a very ordinary Christian, if we practice these four things. So they're purity, prompting, presentation, and plan. Purity, prompting, presentation, and plan. Let's look at purity first. Acts 17 Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, we're going we're gonna to stop there. It's a little slow start, but we're going to ramp it up soon. So, but we got to stop at Paul because we want to ask the question what is the character of an evangelist? And it's purity. Paul was the greatest evangelist of all time, and he was never, in all the times he was dragged before the, the councils, he was never accused of unrighteousness. You read the, any of these Christian biographies and the question of purity was not even a question. Like they were Christian. They were very godly men. They didn't struggle with these besetting sins that, that most people do. McShane says in his biography, when he addressed his congregation, he said, not a morning did he wake up where he didn't think, how can I bring more souls to Christ? That's, that's what fueled him. So his power, like Paul's, was his purity. He was a man dedicated to Christ, and it really showed in his character. Remember, we just you know, finished up the book of 1 Thessalonians. The will of God 
The, the will of God for you is your own sanctification. He wants you to grow in Christ's likeness, no matter how good of an evangelist you are. First Thess 4.3 says that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. For God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. That's his goal for us. James 1.4 He's talking about trials in, the, in this context. And we should have joy in our trials because of what the trials are producing in us. And it's steadfastness. And he says in verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be what? Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now that perfection, that's not a moral perfection. No one in here will reach moral perfection this side of heaven. It's a maturity. It's a completeness. It's, a, it's the ability uh, to be a mature Christian. You've learned how to fight sin. You've developed a, a prayer life in which you depend on God and you're spirit-filled for the most part. You can proclaim the message of the gospel. You can spread the seeds of the gospel. How do you know that a plant is mature? It's that it has fruit, and the fruit is how the plant reproduces. So mature Christians reproduce other Christians. And so when you're perfect, it means you're ready to do that. So are you ready? Are you ready to produce a Christian? If you sat down with someone and had their attention and taught them everything you know, what would that person be like? What kind of Christian would they be like? Are you ready for this? First Peter 1.15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Paul's, Paul's like just so obvious about his goal with people. In Colossians 1.28, it says, Him we proclaim, Jesus Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That was his goal. He wants to present people as mature Christians. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so what does a mature Christian look like? Well, it's, you can look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. You can look at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. You can look at the list in Second Peter when he, he goes through faith and virtue and knowledge, brotherly affection, love. All these things should be increasing in, in you as a Christian. The bottom line is this. If the message of the gospel is repentance and faith, then your life needs to resemble repentance and faith. So Paul obviously embodied this, and we need to as well. We need to be above reproach, unstained by the world. We can't look like the world looks if we're going to preach a message that's supposed to change us, that makes us new creations. So, so three things we see in Paul. Number one is fellowship. It says in verse 16 that he was waiting for them. These are his friends. These are his, his ministry partners. It's his desire to be with them, to wait for them. And we're meant to do this thing with others, to do our Christian walk with others, to do evangelism with others. You're not going to be a good evangelist, by the way, if you don't have a community to bring people into. Because good, good evangelists eventually will... We'll reach somebody and they'll become a Christian. Well, what are you going to do with them? You need a church that you can bring them into. You need a fellowship that they can be a part of. If they're going to leave the world, you don't want them to be all alone. So you've been given many brothers and sisters and fathers in Christ, and so use them. They say it takes a village to raise a kid. It takes a church to raise a Christian. And so we all need to be a part of this, and we need to look to each other as our help and our support for our own evangelism. 
you may bring someone to church that you've been evangelizing and someone else gets to talk to them and, and you may not get credit right for their for their salvation because maybe Tony grabbed them and <laughs> and Tony's going to get through to them. <laughs> and and we need to be okay with that. We need to love that that we have other brothers and sisters in Christ that can help us in this. So fellowship but second you need to be prayerful. All the great men of God were men of prayer. Think of Job, Moses, Elijah, David. These guys all prayed a lot. Jesus prayed. And so all great Christian men, all people who want to evangelize should pray. If your Christ-likeness, your holiness is the tip of the iceberg, then prayer is what's underneath the surface. It's what supports it. It's what produces it. You need to spend hours in prayer for the lost. You need to create a a top 10 list of people you want to see in heaven with you when you die and don't give up on them until they come to Christ. I'm reminded of a story of George Mueller who prayed for a guy's salvation for 55 years and the guy never came to faith until George Mueller died. But when asked, why do you keep praying for him? He said, why would God let me keep praying for him if he wasn't going to save him? So he prayed until he died and the guy came to Christ after George Mueller died. But God tells us to pray in 1 Timothy 2. It says, first of all, then I urge, this is Paul talking to Timothy, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And he, he uses kings there as a representative group. If you're praying for kings and their salvation, you should pray for everyone else too. And he uses four different words for prayer, supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. And he, he uses that to emphasize the need to pray for the lost. So Christ-likeness, fellowship, prayerfulness, and lastly, persistence. Evangelism is difficult. Colossians one twenty eight, Paul says, for this I toil struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. This was not easy for Paul. Didn't come easy to him. He struggled through it. And so we must as well, we must struggle in our own sanctification as we attempt to grow in holiness and fight for time in the word and fight for time in prayer. But we also have to, to persist in pursuing the lost. Don't just give up on someone when they cancel a coffee visit with you when you wanted to share the gospel or if they kept changing the subject. Just get better at it. Just keep doing it. Keep pursuing them. Don't give up until I would say they reject it. And we'll talk more about that later. So are you committed to purity? Are you committed to knowing Christ intimately, to developing your own prayer life and and your own repentant lifestyle? Because that's what you're going to be reproducing in others. So you want to make sure that that's first and foremost on your list. But the second is the prompting. So look back at the text. It says his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. This word provoked is a negative emotion. This is righteous anger that he's feeling. And he's feeling it because it tells us why the city was full of idols. So he saw something he perceived and what he saw was idolatry everywhere. And that made him feel a certain way. It was negative. These idols were robbing God of his glory. And that moves him to verse 17, 
to the, to preaching. It says, so he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He broke his pattern here a little bit that if you read through acts, you see that typically he would go to the Jews first. And then when they reject him, he'd go to the Gentiles. But here he's kind of doing both. He's, it says they're in with the devout persons in the synagogue and in the marketplace. So he's doing both. And Luke tells us it's anyone who happened to be there and we see God's providence at work in our evangelism. Who should I share with? Well, who's in your life? Who, who do you know? Who's in your phone that you could call up and have a meeting with? Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So these are two schools of philosophical thought that Luke is using here to represent maybe two extremes. The Epicureans, they're deists and materialists and hedonists. Deist means they believe in some sort of God, but God's not really um, involved with your life or really concerned with your life at all. A materialist, they, they believe that the body and the soul will all pass away and everything is just made of uh, materials. The soul is not eternal. And hedonists, they love pleasure. They live for pleasure. That's what their whole life is about. And then the Stoics, on the other hand, are they're pantheists or pantheistic. They're rationalists and they're cyclists. Pantheists believe that God is everywhere and that in you there's a divine spark. And you too are a little piece of God. And they see God in everything. And they weren't um, literal pantheists, but they were on that, on that spectrum of things. They were rationalists, so they, you know, they were Greeks. They believed in rational thought and logic. And cyclists, they, they believed that there was uh, no real direction to the world, that it was just an ongoing cycle of order and chaos, order and chaos. And in that, they found some sort of meaning, and they were the opposite of hedonists. They actually embraced pain and, and hated pleasure. And so Paul is speaking to a wide range of people here, represented by these two, and you'll see his message is probably more leaning towards reaching the Stoics as the Epicureans wouldn't have uh, much of a, an appetite for carrying the cross daily. That, that's not very hedonistic. He says, or Luke writes, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? A babbler is someone who basically picks up ideas from all over the place and regurgitates them as his own, but there's nothing original in his thought. But others said that he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities or strange gods. Notice the plural. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. In the Greek, it's Yasus and Anastasis. So that's why they said strange gods. Because when they heard the gospel with maybe one ear open, uh, they heard two gods. Yasus and Anastasis. These, these two gods, Jesus and his counterpart, resurrection. So they were misguided there. And Luke brings that to our attention. Verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. So they took him there. They probably just let him there. He probably wasn't dragged there. Um, but the Areopagus is not just a place, but it's a council. It's a group of people. Like it's a name place. Like we would say Washington legislated. Like it's a group of people at a place. And so this is a group of councilmen, probably about a hundred. And they say, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So they had maybe a genuine motive here. Luke tells us in the next verse 
that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so there was something genuine to their desire to hear this, although it wasn't because they wanted the truth. They just enjoyed intellectual stimulation. They liked thinking about new things. But most of them we see here recognize the newness of this thing that Paul was preaching of Jesus and the resurrection. Now it's important to note historians who have studied Athens, they were an intellectual society, but a couple hundred years from this point, they would degrade into more of an entertainment driven society. The gladiators would come and they'd begin to emulate more of uh, Rome. And this is where our society is today. We used to be an intellectual society, but now we're, we're more an uh, entertainment society. We have degraded to that, which presents different obstacles to the gospel. And so this prompting, let's go back to that. Paul's prompting was rooted in his eternal mindset. He was able to see with biblical lenses what was happening on the streets of Athens. And historians have said that it was easier to find a God in Athens than a man because literally it was littered throughout the streets. Every single building was dedicated to a God. So Paul sees that and he interprets it as what it actually is, which is idolatry to God. It's robbing praise from God. And so three questions to help you develop the same prompting. One, are you jealous for the glory of God? Two, do you have compassion for the trouble of man? And then three, does your compassion move you to action? So are we able to identify when something is an idol in the world, in someone else's life that takes the place of God? Exodus thirty-two nineteen. Moses comes down off the mountain and it says, as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the people drink it. There was a holy, righteous anger in Moses when he saw that because they were literally robbing glory from God. We see the same thing in Job 32. Elihu, the the son of Barachel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, he burned with anger after being there for 30 chapters listening to Job's friends and Job. He burned with anger because Job was justifying himself rather than God. But then he burned with anger at Job's friends because all of their talk and they had found no answer as to why this was happening. Although they claimed that Job was in the wrong. He says in verse 18, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. That's the prompting that was in Elihu. David echoes this sentiment in Psalm 69. For zeal for your house has consumed me. He says, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Jesus will obviously echo this many years later in his ministry when he turns over the tables. A few more, Psalm 119, 136, it says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. I look at the faithless with disgust, verse 158, because they do not keep your commands. And then Mark 3, Jesus himself, he looked around at the Pharisees with anger and he grieved at their hardness of heart. 
he said to the man, stretch out your hand and he healed him. But I think this quote from a 19th century missionary, Henry Martin, really expresses what Paul must have felt. So he was a missionary to Muslims and he was in a conversation with a Muslim guy named Mirza Syed Ali. And he says this, the missionary, Henry Martin, Ali told me of a couplet made by his friend, a couplet like a a poem made by his friend in honor of a victory over the Russians. The sentiment of the poem was that Prince Abbas Mirza, who had killed so many Christians, Christ from the fourth heaven had to take hold of Muhammad's skirt to entreat him to desist. Henry Martin was cut to the soul at the blasphemy that he heard and pictured. The, the Muslim Mirza Syed Ali says, or he perceived that I was considerably disordered and asked what it was that was so offensive. I told him I could not endure in existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were to be always thus dishonored. He was astonished and asked why. I replied, if anyone plucks out your eyes, there is no saying why you feel pain. It is feeling. It is because I am one with Christ that I am thus dreadfully wounded. And so this is the feeling that Paul had when he saw all these idols in Athens. Now, idolatry is defined as having any false God. We can make anything into an idol, anything, any thought, hobbies, relationships, desires, Anything that gains your primary concern or loyalty, it becomes the driver's seat of your life. Chad always says that it's an idol is something that causes you to sin in order to get, or you will sin if you don't get it. So idols take away from our trust and loyalty to God. John MacArthur says that idolatry offends God and hurts man few examples. Think of a relationship. You put all your trust and hope and time into this relationship with another person. You idolize this person, but then it fails you. And then you become distraught and depressed and hopeless and maybe even suicidal. All hope has been lost because your hope was in this person that is now gone. Or maybe you put all your hope in money and material possessions, but after years and years, 20 years of chasing these things, you get it all and you realize you still feel the same way. Or maybe you get it all and then you lose it all and you become distraught. Everything that you worked for disappears. You become empty. But God cannot be taken from you. That's why he is to be praised and gloried in. He will always have more than enough for you. He cannot be taken So Paul hated idolatry, number one, because it robbed God of his glory, but number two, because it hurts man. And so the second question, do you have compassion for the trouble of man? Do you see them as sheep without a shepherd? Do you have a burden for the lost, for the way that they must feel in this idolatrous state? Jeremiah recognized the dual implications of this idolatry as he prophesied for God and Chapter two, verse 11, he says, for my people have committed two evils against me. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So cisterns were often built in hills made out of limestone, and then they were kind of mortared around to hold runoff of the rainwater. But inevitably they would, you know, get cracked and the water would leak out. 
And so the picture is one, the first evil, you forsake God, the fountain of living water. The water is abundant, it tastes good, and it's, it's, it's unstained. It's not running through the, the dirt. So you, you forsake that, and you come over here to this cistern, and you're drinking the muddy remains that's uncertain. Who knows when it's going to rain again? And so they've traded this living water for the inconsistent and uncertain muddy water. And that's the harm to mankind that idolatry brings. So do we understand this? That when people are idolaters, they're missing out on fellowship with the real thing that we have available to us through Christ. Fellowship with the eternal God of the universe. And so most people, they may look good on the outside, but we have to learn, as Paul did, to see with biblical lenses when someone is in idolatry and the implications of this. Now, there's a warning here, I think. Uh, We can't stay in this place of holy, righteous anger and go flipping over tables. Let's just let Jesus be the example for that. I think we need to be more like Stephen, who, as he was being martyred, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Or Moses, who prayed for his people, for God to turn his anger from them. Or even Jesus, likewise, who wept for Jerusalem when he came in there and saw them. And Matthew 9 is sheep without a shepherd. So we need to be meek and gentle and humble because we were those people too. So we can't forget that. Third question is, does your compassion move you to action? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 7, it says, blessed are the meek for, or I'm sorry, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And what Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount is a picture of Christianity, the DNA of a Christian. And it teaches us that Christianity is not something that you get into and just add it to your life. It's something that gets into you and it comes out of you in all these different ways. It moves us to action. It compels us. This love for Christ that we've experienced in the gospel. I live, yet not I, but Christ. He lives in me. He lives through me. And so this mercy, this compassion, it's a sense of pity, but it can't remain just a sense or a feeling. It has to move us to action if we're truly merciful. If this DNA has really gotten into us, then we must want to remove people from their pitiful states, which is them being a sinner apart from God and on a path to eternal hell. So this is what motivated Christ to come to us to live a perfect life in the flesh and and die on our behalf because he saw us in our pitiful state. And it's his great mercy that moved him to actions to remove us from that. So this is what it means to be a Christian, to have compassion and for that compassion to move you to remove people from their pitiful state, which is apart from Christ. Mercy is in your DNA as a Christian. And so live from it. Now, as we're doing this, we must answer people and their doubts and, and their objections with respect and with concern, which we see all throughout uh, the New Testament. In Colossians, it says to let our speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. Seasoned with salt, you're, you make people thirsty with the questions you ask them. So ask better questions. We have a great example in John 4, Jesus with the Samaritan woman. I mean, this woman was an idolater. She was sexually immoral with five men, and he was so kind and patient with her as he, as he led her into a relationship with himself. So that's the prompting. Number three is the presentation. Let's look at Paul's 
And really, this is his defense of his presentation. He was already preaching Jesus and the resurrection in the marketplace. And we don't have a detailed um, you know, exposition of that. But we do have his defense to the Areopagus here, starting in verse 22. It says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, remember, these are men. He said this, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, This is an ambiguous statement. It was common to start your defense to the Areopagus with a compliment to them. I don't know if this is a compliment or not. It's ambiguous, and I think that's on purpose. Basically, what he's saying is you guys take religion really serious, and they probably hear that as a good thing. But there's pity and there's revulsion in his heart. We know that because of the prompting that he felt. But he was still respectful. So this is a good example for us either way. Verse 23, he says, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an un, or to the unknown God. This is a catch-all for the Greeks. They, they were scared because they had so many gods. What if they were not paying tribute to one God and they were going to, you know, get struck down for it, for it. So they created an unknown God to help themselves, a catch-all. Paul says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. In other words, you could translate unknown as ignorance. And the ignorance is really emphatic in the original language. Paul is calling the Greeks who love their intellectual abilities ignorant. And so this, uh, if, it, if it's not obvious to them, it's going to become obvious as he continues. That he has something to correct them with. They are wrong. Verse 24 The God who made the world and everything in it, so God is our creator, he's everyone's creator, he made the world, being Lord of heaven and earth, he's the ruler, he does not live in temples made by man, as they thought that he did. He's not served by human hands as though he needed anything, as they thought they could help or worship or serve God in some way. God is perfectly holy, in other words. Well, that's what Paul's saying here. He doesn't need anything from you. He cannot be contained in a temple or a building. He's the creator of everything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, he's creator, Lord, giver of all. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. God is sovereignly determined where you live and when you live. Why? Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he's actually not far from each one of us. Feel, grope blindly is what Paul is saying. He is tragically proclaiming to them that men are blindly seeking God in this world and they will never find him, but it's not because God is far away. He quotes a poet of theirs, Epimendes. In him we live and move and have our being. He then quotes most likely Aratus from 300 BC. For we are indeed his offspring. And he's quoting them to show that they live a contradiction. He says, if y'all believe this, that we're God's offspring. And in him we live and move and have our being. Well, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver silver or stone, an image formed by the ardent imagination of man. 
God is greater than us. How can he be confined in an image? If we can't be confined in an image in gold, silver, or stone, how can we think God can who gives us our life and our being and everything as your own poets agree to? So you guys are ignorant. But, verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Now, Paul says this because they would say, well, if we're so ignorant, if we're wrong about all this, then why hasn't God struck us down? Why hasn't he corrected us? We've been doing this forever. Well, because you were in the times of ignorance and God has overlooked those. He's endured your sin with patience. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's showing the direction of the world. Times of ignorance, not knowing the gospel. Times to repent when you hear the gospel. And then a judgment that will reach that every man will come before the Lord and be judged. That's the direction of the world. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. He's our creator, Lord, giver, and judge. He will judge the world in righteousness, something that you guys know nothing about, by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our greatest assurance as Christians. And this is what makes us look like fools to the philosophers, that everything that our hope hangs on is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul puts that in there. So the presentation of the gospel. We all must be prepared to present these facts to someone in a, in an orderly, logically or logical way that people can follow. And this, you know, this takes practicing it. I shared at our last members meeting and in our evangelism a day yesterday, the bridge diagram, which is a tool that I love and I use it all the time. I've used it hundreds of times on the college campus sharing the gospel. And I love it. But here's, since I wasn't going to draw the bridge up here, this is, Another way you can think through it, and there's four questions to ask when you're presenting the gospel to someone. Who is God? Who is man? Who is Christ? And what is our response? G-M-C-R. Just a helpful way to remember it. And so you fill these categories with all the information that you need to answer the question of these questions. And present the full explicit gospel to them. So who is God? Well, we just saw a great presentation of who God is, is the attributes of God. And you could pick a few different ones here, but we see in our text, he's the creator. He made everything. He's perfectly holy. He doesn't need anything. He's the ruler. He's Lord. He's sovereign over all. If he makes all, then he owns all. And that includes us. He's the giver of all good things. He's determined where we live. But creator, ruler, giver, and judge. He will one day judge the world based on righteousness. So that's who God is. Who is man? Well, man, his purpose is to give glory to God, to be an image bearer of God. When people see us, they should think of God. That's our purpose in life. That's man's purpose, Isaiah 43, 7. But man is a sinner. And we see the fullness of our sin in Romans 3.10, where we see that all have sinned and turned aside. That's our choice to turn away from God. That's the fullness of our sin. And 3.10 through 12 in Romans really really shows that clearly. The pervasiveness of our sin is seen in Romans 3.23. All have sinned without exception, except for Christ, I guess. That's your one exception. 
all have sinned and fallen short of this glory of God. We have come short, missed the mark of bringing glory to God as an image bearer. Romans 5.12 shows the source of that sins through Adam. All men inherited this sin and have sinned because of it. And then Romans 6.23 shows the result of the sin. The wages of sin is death. And that death is an eternal hell apart from God. And so you see the, the purpose of man, the fullness of sin, the pervasiveness of sin, the source of sin, and the result of sin in this question of who is man. And so you will be judged based on how you live according to your purpose given to you by God, according to the requirement of God, which is perfection. That's how we can do this on our own, just be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. But we can't do that. Thankfully, though, the Bible warns us. It tells us we're not doing good. There's, there's times when you know, my kids are being disrespectful, maybe, possibly, and maybe I'm, I'm just racking up things that they're doing wrong, and I'm going to just bring it all on them you know, at one time, and they're going to be like, oh, I didn't know you were keeping track. And that's not that fair. It's better to give them an actual, hey, in the next five minutes, you got to have all these clothes folded, and they get it done in two. The point is, though, God has warned us that we're not doing good in this area. He has clearly told us that we're not living up to his standard, and he's given us a way. With man, it's impossible to be the, um, the image that we were meant to be, the image bearer that we were meant to be in Christ or for God. So who is man? Well, next is who is Christ? Well, six things. Um, and some of these are going to be more obvious and some you may need to emphasize based on someone's understanding of Jesus. It's a great question to ask someone. Hey man, what do you think of Jesus Christ? It's probably the most important thing about you. What do you think about Jesus Christ? And hear what they say and help correct their view of Christ based on scripture and these six things. Number one, he's incarnate. He was born in the womb of, in the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. He was fully man and he was fully God. Colossians 2.9 says, in him, the fullness of deity dwells. Now he must be fully man because the sacrifice to atone for our sins must be made in the same nature of that which the crimes were committed. You can't pay for your parking tickets with monopoly money. And so Jesus had to become man in order to pay the penalty that was required. But he must be fully God because the sacrifice had to be of infinite worth and value and righteousness to pay for the infinite amount of sins that mankind has created. And this is a worth and a righteousness that only God owns and only he can provide. So he provided it through Christ. So Christ is incarnate. He came to this earth as a man. You must believe that. Secondly, Christ is innocent or you could say his perfect obedience so that he could be the spotless lamb that died on our behalf, the innocent substitute on the cross. He lived a perfect life while here on this earth. Also, he imputed or credited to us his righteousness that he earned through his perfect life. He gives that to us in salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're at all confused about the gospel, you just study that verse and it'll tell you everything you need to know. There was a great trade that happened at the cross. Our sin was placed on Christ and the wrath of God was poured out and his righteousness was given to us. So 
incarnate, innocent, his death. Everything was finished on the cross. It's, it's verifiable in a historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under Pontius Pilate. This is true. But we got to understand more than that, that Christ died as a substitute. He died in our place, on our behalf. This is where the possibility of pardon comes in. This is why you get to run in there and say, hey, he doesn't have to die. Your sin earned God's wrath, but Christ paid for it instead. He took the wrath on him. He spent hours of physical, agonizing torment on the cross. But it wasn't just physical, spiritual as well. As God turned his back on his only son, the perfect spotless lamb. And Isaiah 53, 12 said, It pleased him to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He crushed him under his wrath that we deserved. Next, the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we of all are greatest to be pitied, Paul says. Christ rose again on the third day after his death. And this is the assurance that all of this is true. We can trust everything if we can trust the resurrection. It's our confirmation that we are justified before God. We're made right with God. It's the pledge of our future resurrection. We too will rise like Christ and be with him forever in our body. Paul says also it's the proof that God will judge mankind. He's going to do everything he said he's going to do. And you know that's true because Christ rose from the dead. And if he can do that, he can do anything. If you don't believe in the resurrection, then you're still in your sins. And this is something that you have to believe in, have faith in. Ask God to make you believe if you have trouble with this. If you look into the resurrection you know, philosophically, I guess it's really the best possible explanation of what happened there. But I don't expect that to convince you because if you don't want to believe, you won't. That's why you got to ask God to give you this gift of faith. Next is the exaltation. After making purifications of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus left this earth and went back to be with God. And he, there he remains until lastly his return. He will come back. He will judge the world. He will set all things right. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians that knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade man. Knowing that this is going to happen, this is what prompts us to help people and get them out of their sinful state. Every man will meet their creator, whether trusting in themselves for righteousness or trusting in Christ. Every knee will bow, every tongue We'll confess. Lastly, what is our response to all of this? Who is God? Who is man? Who is Christ? What is our response? Well, repentance and faith. He says in verse 30, Paul does, that the the times of ignorance they've overlooked, but now you must repent. You're being commanded to repent. You've heard of the invitation of the gospel. It's actually a command to respond to the gospel by the Lord of the universe. You might want to listen. That's not probably the best way to uh, explain it to us, you know, someone who's seeking, but maybe after like the fifth or sixth time, you know, hey, this is actually a command on your life. But God has overlooked their ignorance to their false worship here in Athens. And he's assuming, I said this earlier, he's assuming they would object by saying, well, if, we've, if we're worshiping wrongly, then why has God let us go on like this? Well, he's overlooked it. And now he's telling you to repent. And that, that, off there, that message, that command of repentance is for every man. Now, this is not a commentary here on, on those 
who have don't have the responsibility of command of um, of responding if they don't hear it. All people um, must hear the gospel in order to be saved. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's saying in their specific instance, God has overlooked their ignorance, but now He's given them an opportunity to repent, and that's exactly what you do when you share the gospel. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So what is our response? Repentance. And lastly, faith. This is the gift of faith. Ephesians 2.8. It says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And I love this doctrine of justification by faith because it really empowers your evangelism. Will you repent and believe today? And it seems like it puts it in their hands, but we know that faith is a gift of God. He works underneath our emotions and our wills to cause us to believe. And so when they say, I can't, I like, I know you can't have faith. Can you pray that God would grant you the gift of faith? And you pray that with them and ask them uh, to really consider this and to beg God for faith. Now, you may ask, when do we contextualize the gospel? Because this text is is regularly used um, to tell us to contextualize or change the message of the gospel, uh, depending on who we're talking to. Um, Does our message ever need to change? And I would say absolutely not. I'm glad you asked. Just make sure the words you're using are understood by the hearer. Right? They may not have a category for sin. They may have never heard that. They may have no idea what justification means, but they may be afraid to ask. Sanctification, glorification, all these things you, being in church all the time, may take for granted as knowing. They may not know. So just help clarify all these words. That's all the contextualization you need to do. Make sure they understand what's behind these words, the meaning of them. You know, a good example would be if you're in a Muslim country where they eat lamb, you may not want to lead off your gospel presentation with Jesus is the lamb of the world who came and take away the sins. They have no category for what that means. Uh, there's a missionary, Don Richardson, who um, was um, evangelizing a tribe for years. And he finally got to where he learned their language and their culture enough, he thought. And he was sharing the gospel with them. And they prize treachery in their culture more than anything. So when they heard the gospel, who do you think the hero was? Judas. Judas was the, he was the guy. And Don was like, oh no, I ruined the gospel. And so it took them a few weeks to realize they had something else in their culture called a peace child that when offered an innocent child to a warring tribe would end a blood feud. And he said, boom, I got it. So you may need to um, to help people understand, probably not to that level, what these words mean. Just define them for them. And lastly, the plan. Verse, uh, just finish off our text here. Verse thirty-two. It says, "Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, go figure. Some mocked, but others said, others said, we will hear you again about this." So Paul went out from their midst. Now, there is uh, something in history about 100 years before this instance where there was a, a murder trial, and basically they said this exact thing to him, we'll, we will hear you again on this, and they delayed the trial for 100 years. And so Paul may have been aware of this, which is why even though they said they would hear him again, he knew that they weren't going to hear him again, and so he went out from their midst. He left the Areopagus. 
But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So Dionysius was one of these hundred men in this council, and he believed against all odds of this Jesus in the resurrection. And he came to be, he, he came to saving faith, and he followed Paul. And we don't know much more about him. We don't know anything about Damaris, but she became a Christian. And others, too, who were hearing this message, believed the preaching of the gospel. And so this is what productive preaching will do. One, it will cause people to listen. And so look at the three ways that people listen. Some listened and mocked. And so if people are mocking the gospel, then they don't have ears to hear. You can move on. Shake off the dust and move on. If they listen and want to listen again, well... Let them hear you again. You can do investigative studies with someone. You can say, hey, how about, I mean, it doesn't seem like you're in a, in a place to really respond to this message. It seems like you, you still have some objections. I'd love to know what those are. And I'd love to walk you through the gospel of John to help you see who is Jesus and what did he actually say about himself and make it take them a little more time to understand this before they come to believe. So set that up with them and, and, and persevere in that. That's a good work to walk with someone. It's really empowering to get someone to admit that they are, in fact, lost. I think that's what's so harmful to evangelism today is that everyone thinks they're a Christian because they've walked in a church, said a prayer, walked an aisle, etc. But they haven't truly been converted. They don't have saving faith. And so it's hard to get people to admit that they're actually lost. But if they do, that's good. You know where they're at. When you pray with them at the end of, uh, at the end of your meeting, you could pray that the Lord would save them in front of them. And they know that um, this, this is your aim with them. And it's so empowering. It's, it's so freeing. And so that's what you should do with those who want to listen again. And lastly, those who are converted. One of the frequently committed mistakes in evangelism is lack of follow-up. We, we share the message. People say they come to faith, they have a profession, and then we just slap them on the back, hand them a Bible, and never talk to them again. And so we got to have a plan for these guys. The primary plan for someone who professes faith in Christ is a local church. you got to get them in local church. they got to begin hearing the Word of God preached. And then the second would be a discipleship relationship. I really got to close this, so I'll just sum it up. First Corinthians 4.14, Paul says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. If you share the gospel message and someone comes to Christ, you have begat a spiritual child, and you are now their spiritual father or mother. And so what do fathers do? They love Fathers set an example. Fathers share their life with someone and fathers teach everything they know. And so that becomes your responsibility as a disciple. If someone comes to Christ under you, that's your plan. It's to teach them everything you know. It's to share life with them. It's to love them unconditionally, to bring them into a body and to serve as an example. So in conclusion, if you want to share the gospel first, focus on purity Develop and, and contemplate a holy prompting to see the world through biblical lenses. Learn and memorize and organize your presentation to present to people. And lastly, have a plan for those who are converted. I know we need a lot of help with this, so let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we can only, um, we can do nothing apart from you. And so uh, we need your help.
And we thank you for your word that is the power, does all the work for us, and we're just the mouthpiece. And so we pray, Lord, that you would fill us with, um, with boldness, with zeal, with passion for this uh, role as evangelist, uh, for this message of the gospel that we have the privilege of proclaiming um, to all the world. Lord, anyone could come to Christ. So would you, would you cause us to just walk in faithfulness in this and, and just ask the question of how uh, we could increase uh, in this uh, through faithfulness to you, through the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.